Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World podcast. August is festival season here in the UK, and one thing that I've been seeing a lot of is science comedy. So that's what this month's episode is all about. One of my favourite festivals is the Green Man Festival in the Brecon Beacons in South Wales. It's a stunning part of the world and among the rolling hills you'll find a festival with an area dedicated to science. It's a field dotted with trees among which you can find science stalls and shows attended by families with young children taking a break from the music. It was there that I met Gemma Arrowsmith who I'd just seen doing a comedy show based on the Voyager missions. My background is completely in the arts, I went to drama school, but I like, I'm a, I call myself like a science cheerleader or a science groupie in that I'm the one on the sides going, yeah, science. <laughs> my previous two shows, I did a show called Defender of Earth and then a show called Everything That's Wrong With The Universe. And they were quite cynical show. You can tell it's called Everything That's Wrong With The Universe. It's quite a cynical show. Um, and I very specifically, in light of what's going on in the world at the moment, wanted to make this a positive show that's broadly positive about humanity. And I wanted, and, and thought Carl Sagan is like a beautiful thread to, to, to put all the way through that because he he, he makes his point, he, it's just poetry. Everything he says is poetry, it's beautiful. Um, and he makes incredibly strong points about the, the uh, the negative sides of humanity while still remaining positive about us as a whole uh, and so I wanted some of that basically and genuinely this is true I've always been obsessed with NASA's Voyager missions Voyager 1 and 2 blasted off in 1977 to explore the outer solar system uh, Saturn, Jupiter, uh, Uranus and Neptune and um, they carry on board these phonograph records which contain sounds and images from Earth and I just think that's incredibly beautiful and um, and so I decided to do a little I, I imagined who might come across those records and what they might think of us and whether they would decide to get in contact with us basically and so you see there are sketches about childhood and adulthood and politics and then old age and death it's sort of like a little a life um, led through sketches basically. Voyager itself, this kind of message in a bottle sent into the, the outer, well it's the furthest man-made object currently, Voyager 1. Um, that's such a hopeful thing isn't it? That is a message of hope that you know this is, here we are, we're humanity and this is what we are and I think it, it, it's, um, it's showing our best side, sure they, there aren't many images of death and destruction on it but it's a it's a hopeful thing, like a hands across the water, but hands across uh, billions of miles of space. Um, I should uh, declare interest actually, because um, my camper van is called Lionel, the spaceship of our imagination. Oh, beautiful from Cosmos! Yeah, exactly. Oh God, it's so good, isn't it, Cosmos? That original sort of 1980. I rewatched some of it recently, in light of the recent kind of nuclear ramping up, uh, and. Carl Sagan just has the. If you Google Carl Sagan uh, Cosmos 1980 nuclear, there's this beautiful section where he talks about um, the sort of folly of nuclear war, and uh, he's, I think he says that the nuclear arms race is like uh, two people standing waist deep in gasoline, one with three matches and one with five. And obviously, he was talking about America and Russia, US and Russia. And, uh, times have changed in that sense, but not in others. <laughs> yeah, quite. So, um, is this? Do you do science in your comedy a lot? Or is this a... Yeah, I have. I, I um, I used to be in a double act with a chap called Steve Mould, who is now in a group called Festival of the Spoken Nerd, who are brilliant, and you should check them out. And he's got a book out as well, uh, called How to Be a Scientist, which is fantastic. And he, it was really him that kind of got me really interested in science and he bought me a wonderful book called uh, The Canon, The Beautiful Basics of Science, which I read and uh, really enjoyed. Um, and yeah, ever since then I've kind of done, when I, I started doing solo shows, they've all been 
a little bit sciencey, and I've always loved science fiction since I was little. Um, so okay. yeah, so I grew up on a diet of Star Trek and Quantum Leap and Philip K. Dick books and things like that. I wondered if Gemma had a desire for her audience to walk away from her shows having learned something. Not necessarily, but be impassioned to go and read stuff. I think. Uh, I mention a couple of books during the show, like, I mean, the main one being Murmurs of Earth by Carl Sagan, which is such a great book. Um, and I would love it. I mean, I, when I watch things, I, I often walk away with, oh, I must go and get that book. And I'd love that. <laughs> I think it's the only show with a reading list. Uh, but yeah, so uh, yeah, I'd love that if people left my show and went, oh, Carl Sagan sounds really interesting. I'll go and read some of his books. Um, like the Demon Haunted Worlds and uh, you know and Cosmos, uh, the book of that, and uh, uh, oh, the one he did about the Pioneer, uh, the Cosmic Connection, which he did about the Pioneer plaque as well. Um, yeah, I'd love that. As I spent time in Einstein's garden, it became clear that the audiences there were naturally science curious. They've come to a part of the festival which is billed as a science area. I have always found sciencey audiences to be the 100% best audiences and they're just lovely they're open to new things they're open to and they and they are very much committed to like we're sitting and we are listening we're not kind of uh, got one foot in the show and one foot out of the show you know it's I did Channel Science Festival recently and it's like gorgeous audience that you know, really wants to be there and wants the show to be good as opposed to say certain comedy clubs that you play where it's like you're, you're playing to lots of people with their arms folded and it's like right impress me mm. you know which is fine but it's, it, I've just found science audiences to be an absolute delight to play to. It, it begs a question to me, which mm. is, it, are you not preaching to the... Converted? Oh, God, absolutely. And that's a worry, absolutely. Um, that said, there... I mean, I th you saw the show today, didn't you? Uh, there are some politics-y things. And also, uh, we're at Green Man, and I, I do lay into alternative therapies a little bit in the show. And, and so that's why I said... Thanks for bearing with me on that one, Green Man, because I imagine there's quite a lot of people here that maybe go in with for the sort of uh, homeopathy and things like that. And I do, in every single one of my shows, I put the boot into alternative medicine <laughs> quite, quite a lot. There's a, a lot of these sketches started life in some form on YouTube. And I've got one, I've got a couple about homeopathy, actually. There's one where I interview a glass of water to prove that it's got memory. And then there's another one which is called My Homeopathic Video, where it's just blank, except for a couple of tiny little shots. And it's more funny. I say it's, it's more funny than, <laughs> than a full video. Um, and I got lots of people misunderstanding the joke and going, it's really glitchy, I don't understand. <laughs> Gemma is also part of an improvisational comedy group who also performed a show at Einstein's Garden. Hello, I'm Ben. I'm another member of the Captain Train Improv Group. I'm John Bannister. Uh, hi, I'm Rob Frimston. I'm uh, the fourth member of Captain Train. The show is called Lopotheses and it's a relatively familiar setup for improv with the audience providing prompts for the sketches the comedians perform. But for this show, they added a scientist on stage who they interviewed and his answers provided the prompts for the sketches and the comedy and I wondered if this had caused any difficulties. I think when we've done practice runs of the show with not always scientists but sometimes with people with a equally mystic technical background um, we found that getting into specifics of the actual functions that people serve um, it, it can just be a bit too intense and it, it becomes really hard for us to improvise based on that because we're really having to process and understand complex topics before we can then digest it and try and do something different with it so instead we have focused on people's relationship with their work and what it what it feels like to be a scientist at the moment and that's raised lots of 
really interesting points about funding, about the difficulty of like, when you're judged against breakthroughs, which can sometimes be like one a year at on a, when it's going well. Um, yeah, I think the, the, that's been the main challenge of trying to find a way to make it something that is accessible without needing to take on an educational role beforehand. But And, and the science content in our show is uh, very much from uh, the interviews rather than yeah. from the improvised scenes that we do in between. Yeah. Of, of the four of us, John and Gemma are the more <laughs> scientifically minded. Um, uh, you know, Ben's a very I know nothing about science. Guy, yeah. I'm an idiot. Um, no, yeah, that's, 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 that's not true. He's being hard on himself. Rob knows everything there is to know about London. Yeah. Oh, that's true, that's true. He's, Rob, he's Rob a, went to Cambridge University and he likes telling people about it. But I study music, <laughs> like science. I'm a, a, a sort of a relative uh, scientific um, layman, but I, I think, you know, that's what's been useful for the yeah, show point of view. It's a good combination, isn't it, actually, to, yeah. have, to have people who are thinking about the science and then other people who are thinking about yeah. the structure of what we're doing and the it's like, it's, it's like it's like the doctor's companion right you will you can ask the stupid questions that um uh, make it more digestible for the audience yeah. as it's improvised we kind of have to work with whatever is happening in the moment um a lot of the training that we that we wielded together was um more about listening to what other people are offering you and trying to in some way progress or explore the thoughts that are there. So the thing that's quite reassuring for me is when I'm improvising, the challenge, the task is not for me to be funny, the task is instead for me to simply add on to what someone else has said. And naturally that just leads to an escalation which takes it to a, a, like an engaging or surprising or just somehow funny, way, funny place. You should try and be funny as well. <laughs> now, I left Einstein's Garden and the Green Man Festival intrigued by the use of comedy and science communication. And I headed up to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival with a few questions. Who is best placed to do science comedy? And who are those audiences? Does it really work? Arriving in Edinburgh in August is different to any other time of year. Almost everywhere you turn, someone hands you a flyer for a show or is performing on a street to a large international crowd of onlookers. Picking my way along the Royal Mile, I was handed a flyer for Agony Onkels, a free show promising a group of scientists who may look like your regular advice columnists, but who have a secret weapon. Science. So now I'm going to go for this quite interesting question, I think. How do I cope with the inevitable heat death of the universe, it's very distracting. <laughs> I worry about this also, and I get over it by telling myself that because of quantum, you can never have absolutely nothing. And so forever, if you have nothing forever, you would know exactly how much energy you had for every point in time. But that cannot be the case because of quantum. Just trust me on this. Uh, I can do the derivation. In fact, it's on the back of my jacket. But, um, uh, and, uh, and so that says, basically, if you wait long enough, energy will come back to the universe and every single thing in the universe will happen. So console yourself with quantum. <laughs> quantum? Quantum, yeah, what the hell is quantum? Quantum is the non-intuitive way that things behave when you get down to a really small level and they are hard for humans to understand but we evolved on the savannah and we have no requirement for the universe to understand to be understandable by us oh, yeah no I, yeah um so high five nothing is understandable <laughs> so postmodernism florence Schechter is the producer of the show. We are a group of scientists and we solve people problems, people's problems with science, often 
terribly and inadvisably applied. I love science and it baffles me that people wouldn't because science is just being curious about the world, right? Um, and I'm a very curious person. I love learning new things and I think everyone does. Everyone loves learning new things. Um, but people are put off by science by poor teachers and, and poor representation and, you know, people saying like, oh, Science is for old white men. I'm not an old white man, therefore science isn't for me. I do science comedy. Um, I've performed at uh, the Science Museum Lates and at the Cheltenham Science Festival and Blue Dot Festival. Um, I really love it, it's so much fun. And people often ask me, like, oh, that's so weird, like science comedy? How do you do comedy about science? And I'm like, well, there's people who do comedy about politics and there's people who do comedy about their personal lives and about current affairs. Why not do comedy about science? You've done other comedy yes. that isn't science-based. Yes. Is that, is that easier, more difficult? I, I actually find it more difficult because if you're not talking about science, you normally have to talk about your own personal life. And it can be really difficult to talk about your personal life, especially with the really short memory span that I have. <laughs> and like, I'll only remember funny stories that happen in my life if they happen to come up in conversation. If I sit down and try and write about my personal life, I'm normally at a loss, I'm at a blank. I'm like, oh, why would anyone want to hear about my life? It's so boring. But there's so much to talk about in science. You literally just go into the news, look at some recent papers, and there's so much good stuff out there. Uh, and no one else is looking at it. Yeah. Uh, no one else is writing material about it. So I find science much easier because there's so much more source material. A problem with a lot of science communication is we have a self-selecting audience. But I think that's one of the amazing things about the Edinburgh Fringe Festival is, like I said, a lot of people actually are interested in science. But because they're not involved in it, because they don't know any scientists, they don't know how to get involved in it. So maybe they, you know, listen to the podcast or, or they go on BBC News every so often, but they don't actually get involved in it. And then I fly it in Edinburgh and like science comedy, science comedy. And then so many people have been like, oh yeah, that's sounds really interesting actually because it's such a novelty it's so new and especially with people who have a passing interest in science um, but never have really got involved in science communication for them they're like I didn't know this sort of thing existed um, and we've been asking people who have come to our shows you know in a sort of MC sort of way like are we well yeah who's interested in science and actually not a lot of people cheer and yet they've come to see the show which I find really interesting we've been asking the audience how many scientists are in and we've never had more than maybe three or four scientists in one show most of the people who come see us are not scientists they're not science enthusiasts they've just come because like there's so much like white men doing comedy on the Edinburgh Fringe who are talking about like their children or how they can't get a girl that they see science comedy and they're like oh that's so new that's so different I might as well uh, it's a free show so I might as well it's a lot of fun it's a nice way to spend an hour we're very silly we make people laugh and that's nice and I'm I'm happy if the only thing that comes out of agony uncles is people come out of that and like yeah I had a good time this is physics world mm -hmm. Do you feel like physics lends itself to comedy more than other sciences or not? <laughs> um, in Agony Uncles, we do have one physicist. Um, I think. I, th I think. It does in some ways and doesn't in other ways. So in some ways, when when we talk about physics, it's such an out there concept that a lot of people don't know about, that when you try and solve real world problems, um, you know, like, oh, um, uh, how do I get my husband's feet not to smell? When you give them a physics answer, like put his feet in a vacuum and then the particulates can't enter your nose. People find that so funny because they would have never, their mind would have never gone there. On the other hand, 
it's very physics isn't a very relatable science so it's very easy to do comedy with biology I find because it's so relatable and part of what makes comedy good is people listen to it and go yes that's me I can see myself in that it's very difficult to do that with physics my next stop was the Pleasance Courtyard it's ordinarily part of the students union but for the festival it's a hive of pop-up bars and conversations uh, off to each side and through almost hidden doorways are a number of theatres and venues where shows are taking place. On a busy picnic table near one of the bars, I met up with a scientist who has recently been trying her hand at stand-up. I'm Professor Catherine Haymans. I'm an astrophysicist at the University of Edinburgh. My expert research area is to look at the dark side of the universe, uh, the stuff that we can't see or touch but that we know is there because of the effect it has on the things that we can see. Uh, so I'm working on a big European project at the moment called the Killer Degree Survey. We're mapping out a huge area of the southern sky in Chile and uh, we're using that to map out where all of the dark matter is. So there's the VLTs, the very large telescopes in Chile, there are four of them, they're totally awesome. And our little telescope's a little survey telescope on the side that, uh, that kind of works in tandem with them. But how is it looking for the dark universe? <laughs> no, you can't. You can't see the invisible. Um, so what we do is we take these these large patches of sky. Uh, we're looking at about a one thirtieth of the whole sky. So it's quite a big area of sky. We're looking right back into the very early universe. Uh, so about seven or eight billion light years back into in time, and uh, we're mapping out all of the galaxies. Now what happens is when the light from those galaxies uh, travels towards us on Earth, it takes 8 billion light years to get to us, um, but it doesn't travel in straight lines, it kind of gets bent and distorted by all of the dark matter on the way, so we know that uh, dark matter bends space and time, that's something that Einstein told us, and uh, we can use that effect to, to work out where the dark matter is, so if there's lots of dark matter, then what you'll see is the galaxies behind it look really bent and distorted. And we're finding some really interesting stuff. We're finding that it's much uh, smoother than you'd think it would be based on what we know about the universe right after the Big Bang. Okay. What, what does that mean? It either means we've done our sums wrong, <laughs> it, or it means the, uh, the experiments that are working, looking at the universe right after the Big Bang, they've done their sums wrong, or it means something strange is happening in the universe that is unexpected. Could be that there's this component in the universe called dark energy. It's this really weird stuff that appears to be causing uh, the expansion of the universe to accelerate, to get faster and faster. And it could be that that's behaving even more strangely than our most basic models predict. It's very strange. It's a really interesting time. But we could talk for literally hours on that subject. <laughs> but we're supposed to be talking science and comedy. There's no, nothing funny about the dark universe at all. Well, apart from the fact that you can, when you're on stage and you're, you're talking about, about the dark universe with a microphone, you can put the microphone up to your mouth and go, the dark universe, which is just funny. I think it's really, really, really important to be able to go out and tell people what I'm working on. Like, all of my funding comes through the EU. Huh, well, that's a whole other conversation with Brexit. But, you know, I have a lot of funding for my research that comes through taxpayers' money. So I think it's really important for me to go out and tell people what I'm working on and get them excited about what I'm working on. One of the bottom lines about, you know, we genuinely don't understand this dark stuff that's out there. Did I mention it's 95% of the universe? We don't understand it. And that kind of indicates that 
that we're missing something in our picture of physics. And that could be a really big thing that we're missing. That could really revolutionise our understanding of the universe when we finally get to it. So I think it's really important that I share my excitement with the public. And I've been, I've been giving talks to uh, different science festivals, you know, amateur astronomy groups. I've been writing for science magazines. But um, a couple of years ago, I realised that I was just kind of talking to the same people, people who were already really excited about science, who were already really motivated and really wanted to come and learn. And it was great talking to them, but I realised that we, were, we just weren't communicating with the majority of the public. And so we started to think of different ways that we could uh, talk to new people who wouldn't normally come to a science show. And, uh, and we did uh, a stand-up comedy event down in Oxford in a pub one night, me and my friend Joe, Joe Zintz, who's uh, at the observatory with me. And we just had so much fun. And, uh, <laughs> and it went down really well. And that people weren't going there to see science, they were going there to see comedy. And uh, it was great fun. So we thought, well, let's do the same in the Edinburgh Fringe. What, what better place than the the biggest comedy festival in the world yeah. to share a bit of science with people. Where, where does the comedy come from? What, what, are you, <laughs> what are you looking for for the comedy? That is a tough question. What makes us laugh, I think? Yeah. What do we find funny? But maybe we're not normal people being scientists. <laughs> <laughs> So our show was, uh, we did a lot about the, the competition between the two of us. So we're in two competing science teams and uh, all of the sort of the, the fun that goes on in, in that and sort of who's got the best result and who's the best scientist, which we found funny. Luckily, the audience found it quite funny too. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, what are the two competing teams then? Oh, yeah, so, so my team's called the, the Kids Team, the Killer Degree Survey. And Joe's on something called DES, the Dark Energy Survey. His is big. His is like a big US project, like hundreds of people involved. Yeah. Mine's, you know, yeah, the scrappy underdog. Yeah. We're like the European team, only a handful of us. Yeah. Smaller telescope, but much better science. And <laughs> <laughs> how did it go? Well, by all the metrics, where the metrics are, did I have fun? <laughs> it was brilliant. Uh, we were almost sold out, and there were it was a hundred seater. Yeah, they so were very almost sold out, and uh, and it was uh, I had an absolute blast. <laughs> it was so much fun. Yeah. And did the audience enjoy it? Well, uh, no, we'd been rehearsing, and we'd been rehearsing to an empty room, and like you'd, you'd say the first joke, and obviously there'd be no response. Could be an empty room, and I said to my my colleague Joe, I was like, oh God, what? people don't laugh and he said it doesn't matter because we're interesting whatever happens uh, but when we told our first joke on stage and everyone laughed I was like oh, this is <laughs> this is gonna be okay <laughs> did, did you get a sense that your audience were kind of there because because they were interested I think it was a bit of a mixture of both so um, I think what we had was a lot of groups coming where at least one person was super interested in the science and had managed to persuade their friends and family to come along because it wasn't a science it was like a mix of science and comedy and uh, like, I don't think, yeah, I don't think you're going to get someone who hates science going, oh yeah, that's science and comedy, I want to see that. But, but I think you will get groups of people where at least one person who's passionate about science brings their friends along who wouldn't normally come along to a science festival or a, you know, a normal you know, gen, general interest public. You know, we have the Edinburgh International Science Festival here, which you know, we, we all take part in and it's fantastic. We have weekly talks up at the Royal Observatory where I work and that is absolutely preaching to the converted and it's fantastic to them because they're great and they have wonderful questions that really stimulate our ideas but it's not reaching a new group and I, what 
what introducing comedy allows is, yeah, I think the people who, who first pick up on these shows happening and go, oh, I really want to go to that, are interested in science, but they bring along their mates. They bring along their friends and their family, and that's, and that's how you connect. Um, uh, the other thing I've done recently is I took part in Brian Cox's Infinite Monkey Cage show on Radio 4. So that's a really that's a really cool podcast. So that's um, you know Brian, wonderful Brian Cox, two scientists and two comedians, and um, and that was that was very interesting mix of science and comedy, um, and I thought that worked really well. And that was quite good because I didn't have to actually be funny because there were two other comedians who did the funny bit. But actually, it worked really well and we were sort of sparring off each other. So that was good fun, but more uh, less less prepared than the stuff we did at the. Fringe. So I think science and comedy works. I think it's a really good way, particularly to get uh, to maintain teenagers' interest in science. I know the these podcasts have you know have a wide listenership. What I think is hard with comedy is getting people to come along. Like you're not unique when you're doing comedy. There are loads of comedy shows, and that's sort of one thing at the fringe. You know, our show was a one-off. And we did really well in almost packing it out, but if we tried to do a whole run, you know, some of these comedians are doing a whole run for the whole month. <laughs> we had like two people a day. <laughs> Sadly, Catherine and I didn't have time to talk further about her findings on dark matter another time, I hope. But we went to see a wonderful show by someone who had sold out the entire run of the festival with extra shows added in. Hello, I'm Samantha Baines. I'm a comedian. When I was younger, I always liked the sciences specifically physics like the universe and space and I actually well the story goes from the first show that I saw Brian Cox and thought oh he's dishy and what he's saying is very interesting maybe I'll find more about this um, and then also on top of that the behind the scenes is I did a play um, where I played a physics teacher uh, who was dying it wasn't a comedy. Um, I played a physics teacher who's dying and she was trying to come to terms with her death by looking at science and the universe and the way like stars regenerate and we all become star stuff in the end. And that, I did a bit of research for that play and then that also got me, kind of reignited my interest in science as well as sort of Brian Cox being so, I think the fact that, you know, he is fairly attractive and does have nice hair, but the fact that he's so passionate about the universe and like facts and kind of makes not always accessible but sometimes makes it accessible um kind of made me excited and but then also my new show is about the lost women of science because i feel like i want there to be a female scientist like that on the tv doing what brian's doing um so that you know young girls can see that instead of you know seeing this this guy being great we can see a woman doing it and being intelligent and interesting and attractive um if if they want to be and um and we can you know aspire to being that so this show is about some lost women of science after doing a whole show trying to impress brian cox last year and finding out stuff about the universe in case we met up for coffee so i could impress him um, i never met him but i did write him a poem and it's a stupid poem about him being like a superhero with some climate change and science jokes in and equations and uh, and i tweeted it hit at him every day live from my show last year I got an audience member to click send and he did read it and he replied saying I'm not a fan of hobnobs which is a direct reference to the poem and was somewhat of an anticlimax 
Um, but during <laughs> but during that show last year, I definitely uh, I definitely discovered amazing women in space like Sally Ride and Valentina Tereshkova, who's the first woman in space, and um, Helen Sharman, who is obviously the first Briton in space. Um, even though Tim Peake has kind of gone down in history as the first Briton, obviously he's the first like UK funded astronaut in space. But Helen Sharman was our first astronaut, and I got to meet her at a science event. Um, so I just got really excited about female scientists, basically. And so my new show is about kind of exploring some lost women that I didn't know about already. So yeah, I'm not a scientist at all. I just am excited about it. So I kind of come from the idiot's perspective mm. of like, this is what I found out. Yeah, isn't it cool? Yeah, it is. <laughs> well, um, what does right? So do you do you want the audience to walk away having learned anything about science in particular? Um. Yeah, I'd like to, I guess there's there's more facts about the women in this show. Uh, in, in last year's show, there were more just kind of science universe facts in last year's show. I think there's a couple of facts in this year's show, like about um, Marie Curie and the elements she discovered and things like that. I, I guess I want people to leave and think about these women and think about awesome women that they want to celebrate in their lives and that these women shouldn't be forgotten in any field and we need to kind of make sure that doesn't happen by celebrating people and raising awareness of women doing amazing things um, and also hopefully kind of reignite a bit of a science passion that makes people go off and kind of look up something that they're interested in because you know I'm 30 and I am learning about all this stuff and I'm still learning about, and I do like open university courses on black holes and stuff to research for the show and it's really fun so if yeah if someone leaves and goes oh maybe I'll look that up and mm. that would be cool. I've been talking to quite a few people about science comedy most of the time the science of it is sold more than you have in the way that you've sold your show. Mm. Is that a deliberate decision for you to kind of not talk so much about science? Well, I guess I am not a scientist, so I'm coming from a comedy background. So my first aim needs to be to make people laugh. Um, and I, you know, I'm an actor and as well, and I do the radio and all that sort of thing. So I'm more of a performer. Um, so I guess I'm just coming from a performer who's interested in science and trying to make it accessible is like the wrong word because it is accessible but you know people who aren't necessarily huge science fans you know people who wouldn't go to see brian cox speak um at an event or to go to a yes apparently (laughs) weirdos um but people who wouldn't you know search out science events and go to see a lecture hopefully could come to my show and understand everything and find it interesting and funny and then that would maybe encourage them to look up a science lecture. So yeah, so I guess I've done it from a more like subtle science is coming up, sneaking up behind the joke and biting you on the bum. I do get a lot of scientists come to my show and I get a lot of PhD students um, and a lot of women in particular. And I think what they have fed back to me that they like about it is it's silly and it's informative. Whereas I think, you know, there could be the opinion that some sort of science lectures are quite dry and hard to get into because they are quite serious and quite information heavy. But I, well, I always think that personally, I learn more when I'm more engaged. And so if I can hopefully engage an audience with comedy, then that's how, you know, that's my method of doing it. But different people have different methods, like Brian Cox engages us with his hair and 
Um, <laughs> he's got a sense of humour too. <laughs> so, so I did want to discover the lost women of science for this show. So the first thing I did to kind of warm me in is I read the whole of the GCSE science syllabus. Just for balance, guys, just for banter. Um, I, I read the whole of the current GCSE science syllabus, and I discovered there's only one woman mentioned. There's only one female scientist mentioned by name. Does anyone know who that might be? Marie Curie. Marie Curie. So Marie Curie is who we expect it might be. It's actually Rosalind Franklin who helped discover DNA. Yeah. Um, but Marie Curie is a famous one, as we all know Marie Curie, famous female scientist. If you don't know her, uh, she discovered the elements polonium, which is element 84, and radium, which is element 88 in the 1900s. Because Bruce Willis was famously searching for the fifth element. <laughs> Turns out it's not semi-naked girl with orange hair. Who knew? It's Boron. <laughs> That's the fifth element of the periodic table, guys. I don't know if you know, right, because Bruce Willis was actually a secret scientist. I don't know if you know this about him. Yeah, because um, he discovered the fifth element, didn't he? He discovered the sixth sense. Um, and he actually did a lot of studies into death. Um, he discovered that dying's really hard, <laughs> even when it's with a vengeance. Um, he's a great guy, great guy. Um, also, the element of surprise. <laughs> Hopefully I'm doing a show next year about the science of sound. Are you? Yes, because I've, I've recently been given a hearing aid, which was not a nice present to receive. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, because I, I, I can't hear the higher frequencies in one ear. And it was quite a shock at 30 to be given a hearing aid. Um, but the first thing I wanted to do was like, when I put it in, I was like, I want to know how this works. And like, why is the sound I'm hearing so different? And I do the radio and it sounds to me like I'm on the radio when I've got the hearing aid in. And so, yeah, I'd love to find out about sound and maybe find out about some cool women in sound as well. So I'm constantly looking for more women. So if anyone knows yeah. of some amazing women that I could kind of celebrate in my shows, get in contact on Twitter what? at Samantha Baines, B-A-I-N-E-S. But yeah, there were so many to choose from and so many I came across and I asked lots of people to suggest them. And, um, <clears throat> and the women who were in Hidden Figures, Mary Jackson particularly was on my list but then obviously Hidden Figures came out and I thought she might get a bit more exposure from that film um, <laughs> than my little comedy show um, so maybe I'll pick someone else. If I was in the habit of giving out star ratings Samantha's show would be getting five from me. In fact you can find a written review of three of the shows I saw on physicsworld.com. I returned from Edinburgh highly entertained but also convinced that science has a place in comedy, and comedy has a place in science communication. I'd like to thank Gemma Arrowsmith, John, Ben and Rob from Captain Train, Professor Catherine Haymans, Samantha Baines and Florence Schechter of Agony Oncles for talking to me. I should point out, being from Manchester, that Agony Oncles as a name doesn't quite work for me. Aunts aren't called aunts in Manchester, they're called ants, which makes the name Agony Ankles, which is a whole different thing altogether. I'll leave the comedy to the professionals. We've been getting some really interesting comments on the podcast and I thank you all so much for your thoughts. To join the conversation go to physicsworld.com or leave us a review on iTunes or tweet us at physicsworld. We'll be back next month but until then thank you so much for listening. Physics World.